Hello again listeners and thank you for joining me for another edition of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast as always is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Vent. Each pod I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they're passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. On to my special guest now, and I'm thrilled to introduce the first ever female guest for this edition of the Just Checking In podcast. That woman, or queen, I should say, is Miss Verity Bramwell. Verity is not only event champion and a very dear friend of mine, but also happens to be operations manager at a charity called the Ollie Foundation. Ollie, which stands for One Life Lost Is Enough, fund suicide prevention skills training for any individual or community that wants it, especially those interacting with young people or young people themselves. This also may be parents, students, teachers, other charities or community groups. The aim of the training is to create suicide-safe communities where an ethos of awareness is created and prevention is structured around alertness, intervention and recovery. Verity, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. How are you, first of all? I'm very well, thank you. I feel honoured to be the first female guest. Oh, I'm, I'm very privileged to have you on. For the listeners that don't know how we know each other, this is actually the first time we've ever met in person. Um... I don't actually remember how we got connected and it's kind of a funny story because you don't know either, do you? Nope. <laughs> no. Um, but we, but here we are, we are, sat together and about to do this pod. So now that we've got that out of the way, shall we get started? We should. Now, I gave a brief introduction to who you work for in the intro, Verity, but could you go into a bit more detail about what the Ollie Foundation does and your role within it? Yeah, of course. So Ollie was founded in 2016 by three parents in Hertfordshire who had all lost their sons to suicide. So they actually met at a support group and it's generally considered that suicide is preventable, um, especially in young people, because quite often young people haven't had the life experience that tells them that you can have a really, really kind of bleak time and it does get better. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to do something really to prevent other parents, other families from enduring what they'd endured and to prevent young people from feeling like suicide was their only option. And when we talk about young people, are we talking about from age sort of like four to 21? Are we talking about what is there a specific age bracket? Or is it, is yeah, it so broad? it's kind of discretionary because it depends who you're who you're talking to. Mm-hmm. You know, generally, um, children and young adults are considered up to up to 25 mm-hmm. um i'm no longer counted as a young person anymore. i'm 25 now so well, i probably don't count either now so i've probably gone past that bracket <laughs> uh, yeah um so papyrus the national youth suicide prevention charity they go up to 35 mm-hmm. um so really it's, it's kind of fluid depending on the on the situation but um you know definitely teenagers and um those in their their early 20s focus on teenagers. Yeah. well cool um, what role does, does Ollie play in the mental health sector more, more widely and, and the conversation around it too? So locally, um, because we've grown an awful lot in three years, we are now contributing far more to the conversation about mental health as a whole. Um, and one of the big things that we are educating on is the difference between mental health and mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, because and for every- the listeners, what, what is the difference, would you say? So everybody has mental health, just as though you you have physical health, whereas not everybody will have mental illness. 
So mental health is complex because it's comprised of individually complex things, such as our relationships, how we understand the world, our ability to solve problems, um, resolve conflict and identify and respond appropriately to our emotions. So none of those things on their own are particularly straightforward. And then you kind of roll them all into one big bundle. And that is is really what underpins mental health. Um, one of the big topics at the moment is um, there's a lot of conversation about CAMS and about how... And what does CAMS mean for people who don't know? So CAMS is the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. So um, kind of under 18, um, they're who, who you see. But really CAMS was set up primarily to um, treat and work with young people that have mental illness. And we're seeing an awful lot of young people that are incredibly anxious, have chronic periods of low mood, but they don't necessarily have clinical depression or an anxiety disorder. They are suffering with chronic poor mental health. And therefore CAMS isn't really set up to help them because CAMS isn't there to develop resilience and teach young people life skills. Um, It's there to treat mental illness. And although these young people can be really, really actually quite unwell, um, they don't necessarily have mental illness. Mm. And for the wider conversation, why is it important that we make that distinction between people who have mental illness and people who have um, just maybe poor mental health or or, um, who are going through a particularly bad kind of period of their life? Well, I think for us, especially in relation to suicide, it's all the more relevant because... um, there's actually more and more research coming to light that that shows, especially in young people, um, quite a lot of suicides or suicide attempts aren't actually related to mental illness. Wow. Um, why, why, why do you think that is? So it's more to do with emotional crisis and being overwhelmed. Okay. And the point is, if you have poor mental health, um, it's really easy for you to be overwhelmed. And actually anybody can become overwhelmed. Um, so... In terms of awareness of suicide, the point is really important because it demonstrates that it's relevant to everybody because it's not just to be concerned about those that do have a mental illness because, of course, they they are they can be at risk, but actually it can happen to anybody. Mm. Um, what what was your what was your reason for for joining Ollie at the time you did? You know, tell us a bit more about why you were so attracted to that company's cause in particular, apart from you know the things we've just mentioned. So I was introduced to one of the founders right back in the early days. Um, pretty sure it was actually before he even had a reg- registered charity number. Um, and his his son had gone to school with one of my cousin's kids. And I've always been passionate um, and into kind of youth well-being and mental health and, and supporting our young people. So I volunteered for a bit um, at the beginning. We kind of ran a, a youth group project. But back then, there just wasn't the structure for it to be sustained. Mm-hmm. So I drifted off my own way and, and went into kind of student mentoring in secondary schools. And then in August 2017, I made my fourth suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I'm incredibly lucky to still be here um, because the, the doctors had kind of told my friends and family that I, I wouldn't wake up. Um, and you, for the listeners, you were in a coma? Yes, yeah. I was in a coma um, and I'd had seizures um, but I was in a coma. It wasn't medically induced. Um, they'd found me in a coma right. and couldn't bring me out of it, um, which was where the kind of risk was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always been really open and honest about kind of any any struggles to do with mental health. So um, it was a bit of a medical miracle, kind of just over a week 
after I woke up, I was discharged and back home. So our, one of the founders got back in touch and just said, you know, is there anything we can do? Um, and at that point, I wasn't working. So I had no purpose, no kind of motivation, no structure. So I started volunteering for Ollie. Um, so like two weeks later, I was at, at an event because um, actually my best friend saw a photo of it a little while ago and was just like, oh, you look like crap. And I was like... <laughs> <laughs> Always good to have your friends say that. And I was else. just like, yeah, well, I'd only been out of hospital for like two <laughs> weeks. So I think I was doing pretty well. Um, and, and yeah, so from there it just kind of um, turned into a, a paid admin position um, because I'd been doing a lot, a lot of the job as a volunteer anyway. Um, but because it was, it kind of eased me in um, so it was less pressured. Um, and it's not even so much pressure that, you know, Ollie puts on me. It's pressure I put on myself. Um, and, and yeah, somewhere. So I started working for them in October 2017. And at some point kind of started running the whole charity. Nobody wow. really knows when that happened. <laughs> it was just, you know, one of those gradual things that. And you eventually um, just be the, the go-to girl for everything. Basically. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. How how do you see the role of of, of Ollie going forward, and, and are there any particular projects that we should know about, or the listeners should know about that that they could perhaps get involved in, or just to know about, really? Yeah, there's um there's a, a couple that we're we're kind of starting getting the ball ball rolling in terms of specific projects. One is actually all to do with working with men and boys, um so fits really nicely into thanks for the plug that's into, good, uh, good, into good event time in there. good time. <laughs> um, and really, we want to be offering our training, our suicide alertness training to places that men and boys visit, um, that they all kind of tend to visit in, in one way or another. So looking at things like tattooists, barbers and personal trainers, um, because we all we all know the kind of jokes about women going to the hairdressers and having. And there's quite a big movement to to make hairdressers more sort of aware of perhaps domestic abuse or perhaps mental health issues in women. So yes. it's not even something we can. It's not even something to joke about, really. Is it's quite a serious yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but really, we want to foster environments where um, you know people have the the skills and the knowledge to, if they do notice changes in one of their clients, they're they're comfortable and confident enough to ask and what sort of changes for the listeners could could they exhibit so it, it's changes in behavior or um changes in the type of things they're saying so you know if someone's normally the life and soul of the party um and then they start talking about hopelessness and not seeing the point you know that's a real real red flag to indicate that they might be struggling um so just being able to kind of pick up on those things and have have the frank conversation with them about how things are um, and then really it's not about expecting them to to solve people's problems or to become therapists but really to educate them about what support is there so that they can then signpost people that are struggling to that support and how can the listeners get involved in ollie if they want to and where can they go to find out more so on our website you have all of our contact information if there are any kind of barbers pts and tattooists that would like to get involved in the program um kind of if you're you know london hertfordshire um based way we we'd love to hear from you um, and what what is the website so if the listeners can go to it is www.theolliefoundation.org and that's o l i e and do does ollie have uh, social media that people can follow and and see what what any uh, updates are people getting up to we do um 
don't ask me why, but all of our handles are different. Right, okay. Um, so off the top Brand of my... Brand recognition Oh, I know. Off the top of my head, Twitter is the underscore Ollie underscore found. Facebook is the Ollie Foundation. And Instagram is, I think, the Ollie Foundation. If you've got any of those wrong, <laughs> we'll put the links in the description of the pod. So <laughs> Thank don't worry. you. Now, moving on to this next topic, and I think it's one which means a great deal to you, and it's one we've lightly touched on, on already, um, which is which is your cousin, Matt. Um, now, earlier this year, you wrote an article for Vent about losing him to suicide. And for the listeners who have, haven't had a chance to read it, I would highly recommend they, they do so. But first of all, if you could, you know, tell me a bit more about Matt, um, the article that you wrote and why you decided to write it. So Matt was my cousin. Um, it's kind of a joke in my family because my dad was one of seven. So you can imagine just how many cousins this I, I have. Um, but really his his mum was probably like my closest aunt. Um, so him and his younger brother and two, two older siblings um, have been probably closer to them throughout um, my childhood and, and early adulthood than any of the others. Um, so in August 2017, it was August bank holiday weekend. Um, my parents were away and I was binging TV um, with the dog. Hadn't, hadn't got dressed. Any particular TV shows? I, do you know what? I can't even remember what it was. I can't. It might have been Game of Thrones. I think I was... Uh... Still scarred from that series 8, to be <laughs> oh, honest. Oh, tell me about I'm not, it. No spoilers. I'm not letting, letting anyone have any spoilers. But yeah, I'm still scarred from um, how bad that series was. <laughs> but I think I was I was kind of re-watching it all in, oh, yeah, in yeah, preparation. Yeah, yep. Yeah, um, so, you know, hadn't, hadn't got dressed, hadn't done anything. Um, and I got a call from uh, my cousin... And I did think it's a bit odd because they were away. Yes, one of my other cousins, he's uh, Matt's sister. And I did think it was odd because they were in Dorset on holiday. So I I answered and it was actually um, her her daughter. And all she said was, Tom's just called Nanny saying Matt's committed suicide in the shed. Wow. Um, That's certain. And that was on the phone. And that was it. It was just like, hi, Verity. This, I don't, that there was wasn't even there a wasn't high. Even that. It was, it was literally just, just... I mean, what was your initial reaction? First of all, if you had one. My initial was reaction was or? I went cold and then you just think somebody's got their wires crossed somewhere. Mm. Like there's been miscommunication and this isn't actually what's happened. Just the shock of like kind of like almost like denial and shock at the same time yeah you just yeah. think this can't be happening yeah um so basically they couldn't get hold of Matt's younger brother Tom um after he ended the the original call now they they live um like 0.2 of a mile from me so right. literally around the corner so a 10 minute walk I mean not, not, not even, even that. that okay I mean um it's like three three minutes Right. Okay. Um, so not far. Not yeah. far at yeah. all. So I just said, right, um, I'll go and and see. And in that kind of moment of madness, all I could think about, which is is so laughable now, is I haven't brushed my teeth. Um, I, I can see, I, but I can also see why you would think that because you just it was like your mind trying to distract you from something. Yeah, wasn't it? and yeah, yeah, and I was like, I've got no idea what I'm. 
walking into so i need to have a decent breath like yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you know what yeah, i mean yeah, like no, I mean, um really. it was just yeah something basic to hold on to um so anyway i kind of shoved shoes and stuff on um faffed about brushing my teeth for about 20 seconds which was hardly enough to make a difference anyway mm. and then ran round so um Matt's sister Lindsay called me again when I got to the top of their road because I obviously hadn't called her back um and I just said I can see two police cars and an ambulance so I said I'm I'm at the top of the road let me get there and then when I know what's going on I'll call you back because I didn't know what I was going to walk into. So Mm. I didn't want her on the phone because I didn't know what my reaction was going to be. So I didn't want her to hear it basically. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I got there, um, I I found Matt's younger brother, Tom, and one of their neighbors sitting kind of in the garden. Um, And obviously the scene was fairly hysterical Mm. um so at that point my immediate concern was just for tom like Mm -hmm. i didn't even really ask about matt Mm -hmm. um and then the police basically kind of shepherd us inside right um and at that point i asked their neighbor could she call Lindsay back right Um, but from what basically from what tom was saying i was i knew that matt was dead right um and had he been moved from the spot that he was found not at in? that point okay um they i think they were in the process of of moving him which is why they moved us inside yeah um and the rest for kind of the the short period after that i suppose is a bit bit of a blur mm-hmm. i think it would be um, yeah of course could you the, turn lynn's pump in and yeah all that sort of stuff um, yeah i mean the police were absolutely amazing um the the because they had officers outside and then they had officers inside with us um i called my best friend and was basically just like i need fags mm. um and kind of told her what had happened because she lives around the corner as well so I knew I couldn't leave and I knew I was going to run out of cigarettes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, she went and at that point she was the only person I told. My parents were were away so I hadn't told them and that was a whole situation because this was August, a year later, after they were away and they got the call that I'd about attempted about suicide yes, and they had to travel back. Yeah. So I was just like, I can't call them yet because um, I'm a state mm-hmm. and they don't need that there's nothing they can do um so there's a lot about managing other people as i mean from a, you always had this very like from what i gather it's a very unselfish point of view because you were trying to manage other people perhaps more than yeah your own, your own emotions I, think I just went into work mode yeah, yeah um and then then really you know it was a case of they did actually call in an, um, an air ambulance they were trying to they'd moved him and they were trying to resuscitate him so they called in the air ambulance um and and they came and at that point i suppose i was clinging on to hope um it was tom that had found him so so it wasn't the neighbor it wasn't so he had actually seen him and found him yeah right, okay um and he had called well he'd called he found a note and that's when he called his mum um 
and then went and found him and then hung up on his mum to call 999. And how old was Matt? 32. Okay. Um, and Tom was, was 29. Okay. Um, so Tom was adamant that he was dead. Um, and I suppose was clinging on to hope, thinking surely they wouldn't have called an air ambulance in if, the process if, if there yeah, wasn't yeah, wasn't a chance so the i mean again the air ambulance were great they came in and kind of explained to us what they were doing um and basically said if there wasn't any improvement soon they would stop um and then and then there wasn't so at that point they said we could go out and sit with him whilst they stopped resuscitating him so sit with with matt yeah yeah um so we did um i i said to tom i said you can do whatever you want to do you have some choices you can not do it um and as they, in not sit with and, him yeah, yeah you yeah. can not go out and they will sit with him you can go out on your own or we can go out and sit with him together so we both went out there um but because it's an unexpected death. The whole thing is a crime scene, mm-hmm. effectively, at that point. Um, so we weren't actually allowed to touch him. Mm. But I just remember... What was, the, that, what was that like? I mean... So the air ambulance lady was lovely because she was wearing gloves. So she just said, you aren't allowed to hold his hand, but I'll hold his hand for you. Oh, that's nice. Um, yeah. And it was just really surreal, like just sat in the dirt. Um mm with him and then they kind of they they stopped the machines and then just moved us back inside and then really um we had informed my aunt and uncle and um, by then so they had obviously left Dorset to to travel back so we just really sat and and waited for them um somebody had been informing family I don't know who it was because um word gets around and all that sort of stuff so I think some other some other aunts and uncles got to to ours before um matt's mum and dad got back um what what were the conversation i mean what were the conversations that you you were having to have with with not only your mum and dad but but also with with tom and other people do you remember them at all was it was it was it comfort was it more just let's just be together and 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 yeah what yeah i I didn't actually tell my parents yeah um, because I was then just kind of back in the throw. So actually my best friend called them um, to tell them and they did have the sense to not call me. Um, and so they were getting updates from from my best friend, Kyla, and I was kind of WhatsApping her any updates that there were. And it really, it was trying to, you can only imagine um, the kind of images that, Tom had to see mm-hmm. um so really it was about trying to keep him as calm and out of panic attacks as possible really mm-hmm. um and alcohol mm-hmm. um on that on the night itself yeah. yeah um it you know it was a case of get the brandy out mm-hmm. um to kind of help deal with the shock mm-hmm. um talk talk to me a bit about you know the days and weeks after Matt's passing um what was that like as a family? You know, how did you cope with with losing him? Um, was it? Did you go through those stages of grief where it was sort of denial? Because it was obviously it was an unexpected death. And I remember when 
I lost my best mate at work, um, who was also called Matt, uh, a couple of uh, jobs ago to um, unexpected cardiac arrest from an undetected congenital heart condition. And I remember going through the sort of denial that it could have possibly happened to being in work and the outpouring of grief and then into eventually, you know, further down the line, accepting that he had gone and only remembering the, the well, there was only ever good memories, but only remembering the good stuff. Did you did you go through a similar process because it was a very unexpected passing or was it, what, talk to me a bit, a bit through about that, about the grief process. Um, so the, I mean, I took, I took six weeks off work um, to support my family. I think, it it doesn't hit you for ages. It doesn't mm. feel real. It's mm. like they've gone on holiday. Yeah, hundred um, percent. That's how it felt. Or they've me gone travelling. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you know that probably for for quite a while. We so basically my life kind of became. I would be at be at my aunt and uncle's until like one in the morning. Go home, sleep, get up at like half seven eight, and be back round there. Mm. Um, and then different family came on on different days. Mm-hmm. And we would drink in the evenings. Um, would you drink to sort of regular levels, make sure you didn't get too drunk? Yeah, was it, it wasn't, like it wasn't to... about getting, you know, drunk. Yeah. Um, we would just kind of all sit outside in the garden together, having a beer and sharing memories, mm-hmm. um, sharing the it's funny. It like a wake every day almost in, yeah. in that respect. Yeah. Um, and it probably sounds perverse, but we laughed quite a lot. I think it's important to um, I think it really is. But we would, you know, it would be a case of we'd be laughing and then someone would start crying and then we'd all start crying. But it would kind of only last for like a minute. Um, but for me, it was really important that that happened because you have to let it out. Um, I mean, I don't think I cried properly until after the funeral. Because mm. um, that's a lot of clothes. I think a lot for a lot of people, especially me, I... When I lost my nan recently, um, I, I definitely cried when she passed because I was there as she passed. But after that, I again, like you, I didn't cry until the funeral and then it all came out and I was absolute wreck. And then after that, I felt like I had closure. Was it, was it similar for you? Yeah. Um, I just, I couldn't. It wasn't even that I was suppressing it. You just, you just kind of can't. Um, I mean, everybody obviously deals with things in or deals with grief in their own way. So what you know when you're in the midst of grief and you've you've lost your son or your brother or your uncle you suddenly have all these practicalities to have to deal with um so i kind of took the lead on that with his older sister lindsay so in terms of um notifying you know all the different banks and insurance of his death and the funeral um we kind of threw ourselves into that mm-hmm. um i think you do because you have to and you have to sort yeah. of get on with it i mean it's not a sense of it's not a you know a case of suppressing emotions it's just that there are things that need to get to, done yeah. now and you need to just get on with them yeah um so so that was kind of what what we did which definitely kept us busy um so so yeah afterwards i mean it's it's different for me i guess because whilst i'm incredibly close to his younger brother tom um I rarely saw Matt. So for me, the the pain was more about the pain that the, the rest of my family was feeling. Um, obviously, grieving for him as well. But in that, 
it didn't leave as big a hole in my life because I simply didn't have the relationship or the contact with him mm. um, that other people did. Um, um, and what impact did, did Matt, Matt's loss have on your wider family as well as you? I think um, for some there was, that, well, there's, there's just questions. Um, the, the biggest impact that is basically on everybody universally is the what ifs if I had why um, you know all those questions that you don't have the the answers to and that's what people a lot of people go through with grief as well yeah you know yeah um I mean we were really fortunate that Matt left um a note which did um kind of explain to to the immediate family some of his reasons um which sounds again a bit perverse but was a blessing because an awful lot of families that go through this there is no note mm. so they have absolutely no idea and without um, going into detail about what the note said was it uh, a long case of him you know lining laying out his mental health issues that he had suffered with for a long time or was it a case of him going through particular traumas that he couldn't deal with or pressures or yeah it was kind of a combination of both um but really the bottom line was he had all these struggles and he never told anyone he never asked for help mm. um he didn't share them so to him they felt kind of insurmountable i guess mm. uh, but they they do when you're trying to carry them on your own mm. and did so he hadn't told anyone about this no not even his brother not even his no, no one no one at all okay um why do you think grief um is perhaps more stigmatised in a lot of cases than, than mental health is when we when we try and talk about it? I think because there is no wrong or right way, but quite often one of the one of the hardest parts of grieving as a family is that everybody will be dealing with it in their own way. And quite often two people's coping methods will be in direct conflict with each other mm-hmm. in what um, sense so for example you know you'll you'll have somebody that essentially is in the denial phase where they just don't want to talk about it and they just want to pretend like it hasn't happened and then um someone else who is trying to process it and their way of processing is to talk about it a lot and those two can come into and conflict. those two yeah. clash yeah obviously considerably because you've got one person who doesn't want to talk at all and another person who wants to talk all the time Mm. so it's about ensuring that the different people with their different coping methods have people around them that they can use um so that you're kind of minimizing the the clashing Mm. um so and then you know you do get people that try and say that their way of grieving is better um but really it's just a case of whatever gets you through that day Mm. um matt and and many other young men have been lost to suicide um over the last 10 20 30 years um and i think it's something that i could have been a statistic of as well quite easily um i think it's pretty safe to say that that men in particular are facing a very deep mental health crisis right now in this country um, how do we address this with with actions as well as words and, and greater awareness? It's really challenging because it's about societal norms. It's about culture. Um, it's about 
masculinity and what that's defined as and what's considered acceptable and not acceptable. And those things, you know, culture is deep rooted. Um, So there is no quick fixes overnight. It's about role modelling, I think, especially for, you know, adult men that have younger men or, or boys in their lives in whatever way, whether that's a parent or as an educator or um, however, but role modeling, talking about when they struggle and asking for help um, and also men supporting each other. So um, I don't know if you've seen the Ollie film. I have, a, is it the, is it about two minutes, three minutes long? Yes. Yes, yeah, I think I've seen it. So one of the kind of... And where can people find that, by the way, if they want to know? That is on uh, the Ollie Foundation's YouTube. So if you go uh, search in YouTube for the Ollie Foundation, it's it's called Ollie. Um, but it, there's a, a scene in that where the young lad's telling his friend that um, he doesn't want to go out that night because he doesn't feel well. And his friend says, just pop some ibuprofen and you'll be all right. Um, and really that for me highlights the kind of culture of man up, get over it. Um, when actually we need to change that. Um, and, and peer pressure to some extent comes, comes into that in that, you know, if you are a group of lads and one of your male friends says, I'm not up to tonight, I'm really struggling rather than just trying to encourage them to come anyway, it's about making a, a, conscious choice to say okay well let's not do whatever we were going to do let's go to a quiet pub and have a chat or let's order a takeaway and have a chat um so it's things that actually anybody can do Mm -hmm. within their social circles and within within their lives Mm -hmm. um so it's it's really being the change that you want to see in the world Mm. if there's um anything positive and I, I don't think there is many things positive to come out of um, Matt's really unfortunate passing. What legacy do you hope that this whole, you know, tragic incident will will leave and, and maybe encourage others to, to try and do? In, not just in your family, but hopefully in, no, in the wider I think community. There, there's been a couple of um, suicides of, of men in their 30s um, locally in, in St Albans in the last six months. Um, and Matt, Matt was one of those, but there, there have been others as well. So it's really, I think, about engaging men, and in in that age range, because we have we have good access to obviously teenagers because we could access them through schools. Um, but you know, men in their late twenties and and their thirties, it's harder to access them because you know they they may well have their own families, they're working. Um, and everybody's got different schedules. So I suppose it's, there's been a tragedy. So those communities that, that Matt and the others belong to are now more open to talking about suicide and um, supporting each other because they've seen what happens when when someone doesn't ask for help. Um, so I suppose, you know, that's that's one thing. And Lindsay and myself are always very keen to keep Matt's name and story alive. Um, so in May, Why is that important? I think sharing his story, um, you know, suicide is still one of those things where people think 
it's not going to happen to me. It's not going to happen to my friends, my family or my community. But the point is it can happen to anybody. And by sharing those stories, um, people, people relate to stories. They engage with them in a longer term way than they do statistics. Because statistics may be shocking, but they're still just numbers um, that you can kind of put down to happening to other people. Whereas hearing people's stories makes people think and makes people question um, and makes them more aware. Mm. And finally, how how do you keep Matt's memory alive? So in May, we held the Matt's Family Fun Day. So May is Matt's birthday. So we wanted to organise a fundraiser for Ollie, but also that was in his name. Um, and it was a, an amazing day, really. And that will become an annual event now. Um, and where relevant and, and where possible, I obviously talk about Matt and talk about what happened. Um, and really, I think one of the, the key messages is, you know, my whole family knows what I do for a living. They all support it. You know, they're, they've got no issues with me working in suicide prevention. Yet I still lost a direct family member to suicide. Um, and I suppose I almost got lulled into this false sense of security in that everyone knows this is what I do for a living. So surely if someone's struggling, they'll come and talk to me because mm. they know, you know. Because of all people, you'll be the best expert to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, you know, I've got the personal experience, but also the the knowledge. And don't get me wrong, you know, my family are really great at talking to me about stuff when when they have difficult things going on. Um, but for whatever reason, that just didn't resonate with Matt. Um, so it's a reminder, I suppose, really, that we, you know, ask if if you're thinking that maybe they're not doing OK and they say, oh, yeah, I'm fine. Ask again. Um, don't just take them at, at face value, you know, trust your gut. Um, and sometimes, sometimes there is nothing to see. Sometimes you don't see anything until you have that hindsight. Um, and don't blame yourself for that either. Um, we just do what we can do with what we have. So we've talked about Matt and we've talked about Ollie. And I think the next topic that you, that you wanted to talk about was something that I'll be very happy to let you lead the conversation on. Um, and that topic is domestic abuse. So firstly, I think it's really important that we define what we mean by domestic abuse for the listeners. Um, what does it mean to you? So domestic abuse really is comprised of kind of different areas. So you have domestic violence, which is the, the physical violence. You have sexual abuse. Um, then you have kind of financial control, emotional control and coercive control. Yeah, so I think it's also really important to say that although some men can get uh, domestically abused that this is a topic which the is predominantly um has victims of women yes um, and es especially when it comes to the domestic violence side of things um not always the case obviously but typically in terms of power and size men tend to be bigger than than women um but actually for me I care more about the abuse and the coercive control side than I do the violence. Okay. Um, and actually, I think it's more relevant to vent because the coercive control side of things is far more applicable to men. 
um, mm. as well as as women. And and so we the listeners can get a good idea of of some of the stats in this country about domestic abuse. Could you give me a couple of examples of you know how many women are domestically abused in the UK on a on a daily, weekly, yearly basis, and also um, how it's split between male and female victims, if you could. So the victims are more predominantly women, and that's kind of reflected in the case that if you look at um, ref- refuges, um, the majority of them are for women. Um, there are, f- you know, very, very few for for men fleeing domestic abuse, which I actually think is quite wrong, because um, there are male victims, and the places that they have to go are far, far more limited. For me, I. I'm really passionate about um, the the abuse within teenage relationships because it's the the controlling behaviour is incredibly stigmatised and certainly in the world that I live in, um, you know, for me, suicide isn't that stigmatised in my world because I work within suicide prevention, whereas um, emotional abuse in relationships is. So um, we do know that a third of young people that have said they've had a controlling partner um, that has prevented them from kind of living living their life as they want. Um, and over a third of young people would not know where or who to turn to for support if they were experiencing abuse. Um, and 41% of UK girls aged 14 to 17 in an intimate relationship experience some form of sexual violence from their partner. So this is, you know, typically it's seen as something that is relevant to adults. Um, And actually that was reflected in law because it was only reasonably recently in the grand scheme of things that the kind of offence of domestic abuse um, can now be kind of given in in relationships with young people aged 16 and 17. Um, Before then it wasn't really acknowledged that it happened, but it did. I think also that there is a lot of myths around domestic abuse, not just in, in teenage relationships, but in adult relationships. Um, often, I think um, people will victim blame the woman in a domestic abuse um, case. Um, they will say things like, why doesn't she leave? Or, or why doesn't she... Why doesn't... Um, why doesn't um, you know she kind of get away from it or, or things like that? Instead of saying, you know, why doesn't he stop? Um, and I read a book by um, Jess Phillips, who's the MP um, in Parliament, and she was talking about her time in refuges and working for Women's Aid, and and she laid out these these myths and 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 and, and smashed these myths by saying, a lot of the time, some women will stay because if they leave, they will lose everything. They'll lose their family. They'll lose financial security. Um, they might have to stay because they are so in fear of what will happen if they do leave. I mean, they could die for yeah. all they know. Um, why, why do you think it's important that, that we that we break this conversation and we and we start kind of breaking down these myths as well? I think I I used to be one of those people that was like I don't understand how you can be in a relationship and and not just leave, um, and then it happens to you. And the thing is, it happens so slowly and so gradually. You don't notice it happening. It's not a straightaway thing, it's, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It, um, and they, they, even those that aren't, I suppose those that are 
narcissists rather than malicious. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm. So, you know, narcissists just, they don't even see anything wrong with their behaviour. Right. Whereas those that are malicious plot and plan and, um, you know, think about it really carefully. And you think there's a distinction in in domestic abusers? I think there is, because I think those that are manipulative and malicious, they are far more dangerous Mm. um, because it is their intention. Mm. Whereas with narcissists, they just treat you like shit. Right. Uh, because that's just kind of who they are. Mm. They don't orchestrate it. It's mm. it's just how they treat people. Um but it but it does happen so so gradually. Um and it, it erodes yourself and then you kind of get to a point where you have no control. So you have no finance, you have no friends, you have very limited contact with your family. So all the all the means that you would need to leave are gone are, are yeah. gone but also your self-confidence so generally you know you tend to believe that no one else will love me no one else will want me this is the the best i'm gonna get um i'm not going to be able to survive without them um you know domestic violence is more black and white um, there are gray areas but generally you know if your partner hits you or burns you you know you know you know that's wrong even if you end up making excuses somewhere inside of you you know that that is abuse Mm. um with with the coercive control it's different because we're not taught about it so especially if for our young people and our children if they're entering relationships and this happens in their first you know serious relationship they don't know it's wrong they don't know it's not healthy because they've never known anything else. So then they're even more likely to stay in it because it's it's all they've known. Mm. Do you do you subscribe to the idea that I think is peddled a lot that once a man hits a woman in a relationship once that he will always be like that or do you think it's more nuanced than that? Do you think that if they were given the right treatment and the right intervention and and etc that they could get out of that cycle? I think it's, it depends on the person. Um, so for an example, uh, my, my dad was, was one of seven, like very typical working class family. Um, the old man would kind of hit the kids, hit mm. their mum, hit mm. the dog, mm. drink on a Friday, you know, all of the, the week's earnings. So they had very little to live off for the rest of the week. As a result of that, my dad, um, hit his first wife because that's what he'd kind of grown up seeing not obviously condoning it but um you know the kind of nurture side of it that's what had been role modeled he went to hit my mum um in the early days and my mum turned around to him and said you'll only do it once um and he never raised a hand to her again um so i think people can change but i also think you know for for people that have experienced that their own significant abuse and trauma as a childhood the odds are probably stacked against them because they've got an awful lot more they need to work through Mm. um but essentially you know domestic violence is a habit and it's a response um and habits can always be changed um not easy um but with the right amount of work and support 
um, and and attitude held by the person with the habit, um, it, it is possible. Mm. We we you've briefly mentioned it there that that you yourself have been a victim of of domestic abuse. If you could, could you could you tell the listeners the story behind that? Yeah. So I um, was in a relationship from kind of about being eighteen. Uh, when I was nineteen, um, we found out that my dad had terminal cancer, and we had, I think he had, kind of he proposed around that that time and originally the the wedding was set for for like two years later but then because of my dad we we pulled it forwards and really that you know the relationship started out it was amazing and I felt incredibly special and like the light of his life and um it, it was just you know great if we were out he was always attentive always just little things like if if we bumped into people that he knew and I didn't he'd make a point of introducing me and made me feel important. And then slowly um, over time, I guess, his drinking increased. And then his behaviour when he was drunk just got worse and worse. And was it was that drinking on nights out? Was that drinking um, just at home or drinking out? It was you know, drinking what, out, yeah. but ma- more kind of in a pub than on a night out as such. Um, I mean, there were, there were nights out as well. Um, I mean, it got to the point towards the end that I would start having panic attacks on a Thursday because I knew the next day was Friday and he'd Mm. be drinking because he didn't drink in the week um but it meant Friday Saturday Sunday um were kind of the worst days of the week um Mm. and you know I had no financial control um I had no finances full stop and did he take that away from you I didn't work um because partly because I was unwell and actually I think probably partly he wouldn't have wanted me to really work anyway because then I would have had more independence Mm. um so for example I was expected to do the weekly household shop and live off 70 pound a week that he gave you yeah right um so do a do a whole shop put petrol in my car and kind of live um, so actually what happened was my mum would pay £20 a week for our food shop. Um, and I just saw my friends less and less because... And was that something that he did or was that something just subconsciously just, just not started happening? It was, it was to do with the finances. So I could only really go out if I went out with him because he had the money. Mm. And he didn't overly want to go out with my friends. And asking asking for money if I wanted to go out with my friends honestly it was more intense than Brexit debate <laughs> um you know I would purposely have to start at asking for like a hundred quid because I knew he would knock me down by like 60 percent mm. um so everything had to be like this calculated decision and mm. and, and strategy and do you think he was doing that like you said um with the distinction between um malicious and sort of more narcissistic views do you think he was doing that deliberately no he was he's just a narcissist okay um so i was quite lucky in a way um in that he didn't cover it up if right. that makes sense yeah sure what to other people or yeah just you? in in general um you know he'd do it openly like we went out with um, my cousins once 
and he was always so so generous with other people and he literally went and bought everybody a drink the, the whole round but didn't get me one but do you think that was a deliberate decision him buying everyone else oh, and it, then not it was buying it was one. deliberate not yeah. to buy me one yeah. but um he did it in a way so that everyone else knew that i didn't have a drink Oh, right. So, so he wasn't doing it in the sense of he was trying to buy them a drink to cover it up, the fact that he was treating you badly, no. but he was doing it deliberately. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he, he just didn't see anything wrong with his behaviour. Okay. And um, whereas somebody that, that's kind of manipulative knows what they're doing is wrong and therefore will go to extreme lengths to cover, to, it, up. To cover it up, whether that be lying to other people or only doing things behind closed doors yeah so they would present themselves as a very kind of loving like loving altruistic yeah. person whereas behind closed doors they'd be yeah. controlling manipulative coercive all that sort of stuff um did that i mean what impact did that have on your life first of all at first i when, when it got kind of really really bad you know i would just be in tears an awful lot of the time and i think the most dangerous part was when I stopped crying. Because it became normalised. Because it was yeah. just um, just how it was. And when, you know, we he'd kick off, I didn't even cry anymore because I was just like, this is just part of life now. Um, I don't think I realised what a shell of a person I had become until probably the end of last year, beginning of this year. Um, because, back, yeah, um, because I look at, who I was in the in the months after I'd left, when actually I was still I you know was making great progress. Um, so after after my suicide attempt in August um, was really when my my progress started to kind of happen. But even then, I was a shell of a person. I actually met someone um, a little while ago who, when I first started with Ollie, did some uh, presentation training with me mm-hmm. um, in like the first month. So kind of October 2017. And then I happened to meet him at a a networking thing at the end of last year. And he just stood there and was just looking at me and was like, I literally can't believe you're the same person. Mm. And I think that really solidified for me. Was that an epiphany for you? Yeah. How, how, just how different I'd been. Mm. Um, And how I just had no confidence, no self-esteem. I was as meek as a mouse. Mm. Um, Was there interventions during the relationship by people to, to sort of get you out or was there what, what what was the situation no because I covered for him right um you know I didn't tell people because I mean to be fair the majority of it did happen at home when it was just us um because that was you know it'd be after finishing at the pub or after a night out when um not orchestrated obviously there are just not other people around um so my cousin tom actually knew a bit um and i think this is where the stigma really comes into play because i used to so so i'm a xboxer Mm -hmm. so i used to have him and another friend around um and we'd order pizza and and play xbox and it kind of got to a point towards the end where they would literally text me and be like what mood is he in Mm. Um, before we decided if they were going to come round or not. And do, do you think, I mean, obviously that's not a fault of theirs, but you think that was almost them becoming normalised into it? Yeah, and yeah. I think you you don't, it's just something we don't talk about. Mm. So um, even when we see it happening, 
a lot of the time, unless there is violence involved, we just kind of ignore it mm. um, and work around it. Mm. Do you? Th- I mean, I certainly remember being in school and and see. Not that I was friends with these people, but I would see these sort of relationships happening, and I would sort of question, and I would have the same thoughts, sort of thoughts. You was like, why doesn't she leave? Like he's a he's a complete dick. Like all he does is just control her and all this sort of stuff, and she can't go anywhere without him and all this sort of stuff. Do you think? the fact that there's a lot of teenage boys who are doing this, do you think it's a fault of toxic masculinity? Do you think it's a fault of, you know, our parents' generation not bringing them up to respect women in the right way? Do you think it's a lack of education? Could you pinpoint any reason why you think that's, that maybe is more, you know, abusive relationships perhaps are, start off in teenage relationships and don't end up starting in adults in what yeah what sort could you tell me about that i think we are living in a world where you know probably nowadays more people get divorced than hit their you know golden wedding anniversary Mm -hmm. um broken families is is now an everyday thing Mm -hmm. um so i think if you don't have a it's, it's really difficult because my parents were still together. Um, and don't get me wrong, my dad could be a complete ass, <laughs> um, But like, yeah, he was he could be a proper asshole, but he did love, love my mum. He wasn't always very nice. But I saw it as wrong. I clearly saw it as wrong because me and him used to argue over it. Mm. So I definitely knew what a um or you know what was acceptable and what wasn't mm-hmm. because if i hadn't i wouldn't have had arguments with him mm-hmm. over it yet i still found myself in that trap mm. um but i do think if you don't have if you grow up with parents that aren't together or if you grow up with parents that stay together for the kids mm. but actually it becomes an incredibly toxic environment how are you meant to know what a healthy relationship is because you haven't seen it and I don't necessarily think that's anybody's fault. Um, you know, I don't agree with staying together for the children. Because mm. that could be almost more harmful that than can, it can be. It can be yeah, more harmful. Than, than yeah. um, I mean, we do know that um, looking at kind of local self-harm and, and suicide research um, at the East of England at a conference a couple of weeks ago, an awful lot of the young people their parents had separated um so i think it is a problem i think it's a problem that actually we're really insensitive about Mm. um my mum i don't know why we were talking about it but we were and she was in she was in school um either like late primary or early secondary and she remembers someone in her class their parents were splitting up and you know, the whole class was told and told that it was going to be a really hard time for this this child mm-hmm. and to be really kind and supportive. And so my mum went home to her parents and were just like, I want to do something for them. Mm-hmm. Like, can we buy them a whatever? Mm-hmm. Because, and that's gone now. We don't, it's just a case of, oh, your parents are splitting up. Oh, we'll get over it. Mm. Um, so it's almost reversed. Yeah, instead because of, it's... it's kind of us becoming a... In, in in many ways it's always it's sort of you know it's been a reverse of the mental health trend whereas before we yeah. were saying to people get over it and man up and all that stuff and now we're slowly not saying that with divorces it was being more compassionate then and yeah. perhaps not being compassionate now yeah because it's been more normalized hugely um 
And so I don't think people understand, actually, even when it's a really amicable separation, that young people carry guilt. Um, so, you know, Christmas, birthdays, who do you spend it with? Mm. Whoever you're with, you're going to feel guilty about not being with the other. Mm. And it doesn't matter, even if your your parents are still on really good terms with each other, you inevitably will still feel that. Mm. Um I mean, I kind of felt it in a in a different way after my dad died, being split between my mum and my husband at Christmas and stuff. Mm. Um, so I definitely think, you know, the f- we we don't model long term relationships because it's not also just about modelling a healthy relationship in the short term. It's about modelling in in a in the long term because mm. everybody has a honeymoon period mm. you know whether that lasts a month three months or a year two years it, it happens mm. um so it, how do we sustain our relationships after that mm. um and i do but i you know i do also think we do live in a world where respect isn't what it used to be mm-hmm. um i mean i've never been a, a believer in you respect your elders because they're older than you mm-hmm. i fully believe respect is is earned mm. both ways in in any relationship um but there does seem to be a lacking of kindness respect and compassion mm. in our in the generation below mm. us i think something you briefly touched on i think it's, it'll be good to sort of discuss it is when you mentioned the sort of divorce um divorces and 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 mums and dads who or dads and dads or mums and mums um who split up a lot of the time their invective towards each other can be carried over into the child and that could that child could then develop you know abusive traits and and stuff i always think about when i see family court settlements and they're you know they're very heavily skewed towards women um to be primary caregivers and obviously there's reasons for that as well but it then you know there's as reasons that fathers for justice exist and things like that. Um, But I always found myself very lucky in the sense that I had, you know, two parents who stayed together and I didn't get to experience any of that. But I also hear like really horrible stories about, you know, mums not letting dad see their kids and vice versa. power play. Yeah, and and um, using kids as power play. And that can, I mean, surely that must have an effect on that person and their future and that that child oh, and their hugely, future relationships massively massively so the whole thing is is really complicated we don't talk about it enough and actually i don't think enough research is being done into it um but i definitely think you know that we need to be more compassionate towards towards young people and um i hate to say it but schools play a role in this Mm. um in what sense i completely get that you know schools are beginning to feel like everybody's just dumping the societal problems on them Mm. because it's like oh obesity schools need to educate mental Mental health health. schools need to educate the abdication of responsibility schools need to educate um but i think we're seeing an, an evolution to what education is education Um, And actually, I think this is reflected in the disengagement that young people have with GCSEs. It needs to be less about passing exams in subjects that they've got no care for Mm. um, just because they have to get X number of GCSEs to be employable and and more about teaching about real life issues. Mm. 
Um, bringing it back to to your your domestic abuse experience, um, how did that experience affect um, relationships that happened afterwards in in, in previous in, in previous times in your life, and also um, even in current relationships or, or relationships in the future as well that you might have? Um, so I was so so adamant that. I was not going to become jaded because I've seen so many people that have been in similar relationships and they come out of it um, really hating on the gender that that they're attracted to um, and they're cynical and they tar everybody with the same brush. But actually what that does is it's far more damaging to them than it is anyone else. Mm. And it means that that person that they were in, a, in a, that, that toxic or abusive relationship with is still still got control over them, is still got power over them and is still impacting on their life. So I was really adamant that I would not do that. I would not become that person because he had taken enough from me and I was not going to let him have any say on my my future and what I did afterwards mm. um I had a had a fantastic rebound um which when I I go big or I go home um <laughs> I'll have to tell you about that on a, another, <laughs> on a time. another time on a separate pod yeah uh, that was some um, next level stuff the, the, the final question I had on this topic was speaking from your experience and I think all of our listeners especially the female listeners will will be really in, inspired by this and hopefully get a lot of um comfort and solace from this is that especially if they've been domestically abused um if someone is if someone they know or they suspect is being domestically abused first of all what signs should they look out for um when they see that person out and about and also when they're talking to that person privately and also what advice would you give to a particular person that might want to help that person um in terms of what to look out for Think about what you have control of, um, say, when you're single. Um, so, you know, all of a sudden is how they present, whether it's how they do their hair, their makeup, the clothes they wear. Does that drastically change um, a short while after being with a, a new partner um, or even, you know, a kind of a year after? Do they go out without that person um, or do you only ever see them with them? Do they have, you know, access to social media and, and all things that allows them to communicate with you? Um, do they talk about, you know, seeking their partner's approval? Um, is it whenever you make a suggestion, it's, oh, yeah, that sounds great, but I'll have to check with so-and-so. Now, obviously, you know, saying, do you want to come out on Saturday night, oh, well, I need to check with Bob, you know, is is kind of normal because... You could have kids and all that sort yeah, of stuff. Or, yeah, or, you yeah, know, yeah. Bob might have plans, you yeah, might have plans. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's. I think also it's about the extent of, of to which they're having to ask and in which circumstances. Um, so, you know, just, I don't know, off the top of my head, do you want to go and um, out for dinner for your birthday? So you haven't even suggested a date. Mm. Um, oh well I'll have to go and, and check well why it's your birthday like if you want to go out for dinner with your friends surely you you just go out for dinner with your mm. friends mm. Um, 
so it is, it's always to do with the frequency as well, I think. And just generally withdrawing and, and seeing less and less of people. Mm. Um, if you want to help, there are, um, if you, you know, if you're seeing something and you're not really sure what you're seeing, the majority of um, domestic abuse helplines will also speak to like friends or family that are concerned about someone. And are there any that you know off the top of your head that you could give to people? They're not off the top of my head. Okay. Um, but we can pop them in the links. We can pop them in the links them. in the description of the pod if anyone um, knows anyone who's been domestically abused or might um, suspect someone who's been domestically abused, we can put some uh, helpful helplines in the description for anyone who might need them. There is a national DV helpline that's an 0800 number. Um, I just don't know the whole number off the that's, top of No, that's head. absolutely fine. <laughs> Now we've come to our final topic of conversation and it's one that I always have with all my special guests, Verity, um, which is a general natter about our mental health. So um, firstly, so the listeners are aware, you've actually been going through a bit of a particularly tough period in recent months with your mental health. Um, if you feel comfortable, what do you think um, brought it on and do you feel like you've come out the other side of that just yet? I think I've I've managed to keep my mental health good, but there's been quite a lot of, of challenges um I think the biggest biggest part really is um it's just been really busy with work mm -hmm. and I'm the worst person at maintaining a work-life balance <laughs> I think all um, of us are to be honest I am yeah. I am terrible and I do I get told off by my mum by my boss by my trustees um on a regular basis um I mean I did 37 hours of overtime last Jesus. month Let's do less of that next yeah, month. Yeah, so I'm trying to trying to take it a bit easier this month. Um, and actually, I I made some kind of changes, I guess, to my my social circle at the beginning of this year. Right. Um, just because there were there were situations that kind of kept occurring that were making me feel like shit. Mm. Um, speaking, people, make, people making you feel like shit. Yeah, yeah. not not yeah. intentionally. Um, you know, like people are just so busy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's so easy when you're at school because you've all got the weekends and you've yep. all got the same summer holidays. Mm -hmm. And then trying to maintain, you know, friendships from school when you're all adults and you all work, you know, different different schedules can be, be a nightmare. And, you know, I mean... You know what my memes are like on a uh, on, on Instagram. Yeah, I do know. They're trying true to, to life. Yeah, trying to trying to maintain. Sometimes a bit too true to life. <laughs> yeah, trying to you know maintain the work life balance and eat reasonably sensibly and drink enough water and get to the gym x times a week and see friends is is just um Hard, isn't it? yeah it's yeah. it's a nightmare yeah um so it just wasn't really panning out and and as a result I was just feeling a bit left out mm. um and something i always say to other people and i really you know we're, we're terrible at taking our own lessons and our own advice was you can't control other people all mm. you can do is is control yourself and what you allow yourself to be exposed to um so i was just like right <laughs> like let's let's actually adopt that mm. and just kind of took myself out of the situation so that's made a made a big difference um i actually caught up with one of our our founders of the charity the other day and he was like are you are you seeing friends and I was <laughs> like well uh I was like it probably sounds really really lame but I was like I now don't actually have a huge amount of friends like I have one or two really really great friends and really good relationships with with my cousins and kind of communal friends mm, if that's mm. a thing yeah yeah um like we're all going on holiday in August 
And actually, I'm perfectly happy because um, I'm now kind of okay of being on my own. Mm. Like I'm fine in my own company. Um, so so yeah, there's there's been some changes to make, and I have been um, stressed. You can probably see I have random alopecia on one one eyebrow, mm-hmm. um, which I'm assuming is. Not so much stress, but probably just not enough downtime. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so it is. It's always a challenge. Um, I think it's great that you found you know a balance that works for you. Yeah. And I think the next step for you is probably to be to do a bit more self care in your work life. <laughs> yeah, <so>. definitely, <laughs> definitely. I mean, last last well, the last three weeks, I have not run as much as I I should do because mm. um, I've just been working so. Um, last week I was like right um, just just make some time so I would finish just stop work an hour earlier than I would mm. um, and already I felt so much better from from just putting that that time mm. aside um, and it is about making time because you know we always find time to watch The Walking Dead or Game mm. of Thrones or you know whatever it is you're into um, which is great and and is fine but sometimes it's okay, like maybe a, an hour less TV today and work hard at the gym. Because mm. whilst I'll probably be moaning on my way there. Um, You're glad you go afterwards. I'm, I'm definitely yeah. so glad afterwards. Mm. Um, you, you've, you've talked about your, your mental health experiences quite extensively early on the pod. Um, what health, mental health issues do you, do you live with, if you could say, and, and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? So I count myself to be really fortunate in that I I don't have a mental illness. Right. So um, so all of my suicide attempts have been related to kind of overwhelm and emotional crisis. Mm-hmm. And as a result, um, they, they tend to be the results of trauma um, or kind of a, abuse or, you know, things around around those areas. Um, but I actually, it sounds weird, but I count myself lucky because whilst I might have had more adverse life events in my, my 26 years than, than a lot of people will, will mm. get through in their entire life, I don't have to live with fighting that, that kind of battle inside of my own head um, every single day, mm. which I am incredibly grateful for mm. um, and have huge respect and admiration for the for the people that do mm. when when what was the period where you discovered that you didn't you didn't have mental health issues per se but when did you first discover that these feelings that you were having in a particularly bad period were were not a physical manifestation they were something going on inside your mind and it was a mental thing and 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 secondly when did you have that first conversation about your mental health and what was it like when you did I think my memory is terrible of my childhood. Right. Um, but I just think I I didn't have the words to to talk. It hadn't been nobody talked to me about it, so I didn't learn the language or or how to express it. Because um, I remember my first attempt when I was sixteen, and I was packed off to cams, um, and I just didn't I just didn't really speak because I didn't know how to say what I was feeling because I Mm. couldn't describe it um I I think actually my learning probably not since um I started working for Ollie you know my understanding of of all of it 
now is is much much greater um in 2016 17 i did obviously work with students and we i i delivered pshe lessons on anxiety and depression and stuff um but again it was it was more prescriptive in terms of looking at mental illness than Mm. um being able to identify emotions and and all of those kind of things um so i'm really fortunate that my work has improved my understanding um massively Mm. and and outside of of work um i think it's probably fair to say that you use it as a tool and, and as well it can be a bit of a negative on your mental health um what 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 other tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better and which ones have you found that have worked and which ones that haven't so for me running is massive um most people hate running <laughs> but, but for, for me it just works and also in terms of exercise um i have me which makes it very difficult to and what is me for for listeners who, who don't uh, know so me is also known as um cfs which stands for chronic fatigue syndrome um so in a very very brief nutshell i get um very tired um brain fog uh joint and muscle pain um so exercise is kind of one of the things that that make it worse um if you're not very, very careful. Mm-hmm. So finding exercise that I can sustain over longer periods of time has been um, a struggle, but running, running works. Um, something else I've done is I do my best to remove toxic people from my life. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that's not possible for whatever reason. Mm. Um, and then then it's really difficult because you you want to you know what you want to do, but you can't do it. Mm. And that that leads, or for me, that can lead to a, a pretty quick mental health deterioration because you feel stuck. Um, so for me, I write letters <laughs> to the toxic people. Oh, you actually do that? Yeah. Oh, wow. Because um, you've helped me remove some toxic people in my life, but I, I didn't write letters to them. <laughs> so, so I'll write a letter, but they don't actually get it. Because I can't say all the things. Oh, I see. So okay. I can't say. I want to call them all the names under the yeah. sun, but I'm not allowed. Yeah. Um, so so I'll, I'll write a letter saying all the things I want to say to this person who is toxic that I, for whatever reason I can't remove. And then I burn it. Um, oh. And actually, the first time I did it, I was like, this is just ridiculous. Like, yeah. I feel... Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like on a piece of paper. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So I okay. print it, write it, print it off burn it right um but All actually very in, a, in a health and safety way yeah, <laughs> yes of yeah, course yeah. of course yeah. with my fire bucket next to me <laughs> just in case filled with sand um but so the first time i felt like a right knob doing it because yeah. i was just like surely this isn't actually gonna make me feel any better but it, but it really did it wow. really did okay um and then what what was the process of actually removing that person? Did you just stop talking to them? No, I can't because um, for, for whatever reason, I'm not in a position where I can just exit them from my life. So right. this is my okay. my strategy. So it wasn't a case of you going, okay, I'm not going <laughs> to see that person anymore. I'm just going to be more aloof with them. It was literally, you write the letter, you burn it. And yeah, it changes you know, I mean, the way I, that you have that I mean, I, I do my best to minimise yeah. contact yeah, no, course, wherever possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but where contact has to happen and and generally is toxic that is my way of kind of getting those those negative feelings out of me rather than letting them simmer Mm. because otherwise what happens is you don't resolve those feelings so the next time you have to see someone 
that's toxic it adds to it and then the next time it adds to it and then and you get anxiety over seeing that person yeah as well. hugely yeah. hugely um and so it, it helps keep me i don't know like balanced yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um what, what what triggers do you, do you if you have any triggers that you would say that affect your mental health whether it's something that someone says uh, or it's a certain place or it's you know public transport wherever it is do you have any that that affect your life or you have you not figured them all out yet i'm not the biggest fan of busyness right um so don't go to central london then well exactly yeah <laughs> so you know like the tubes at rush hour are kind mm. of my idea of hell right um i think the most side i think it well ideas, true, I, just gotta get, I just get on with it <laughs> if i stick my head in someone's armpit to get home i will um but i am really what they kind of term an empath so um and actually also part of the ME as well is kind of noise and light sensitivity. So when something in terms of senses is very chaotic, that drains me incredibly quickly. Mm. Um, so I try and avoid those situations. And my other biggest thing was, um, and I, I for the most part addressed it, somewhere down the line, I had internalized self-care as being selfish. So did I. And from, from a long, long time. Yeah. Like, and only till recently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and from being bullied at school, I got told that I talk too much and I always That's talked exactly about the myself. Same thing. The world doesn't revolve around you, yeah. all that shit. Um, yeah. So I, I had this absolute terror of being selfish. Yeah. So do um, I, I have the, honestly, I had the exact same thing. So, so I'd internalized self-care as being selfish. So I never practiced it. So I was the kind of person, and, and I mean, I'm still marginally guilty of this. Someone messages me saying, can I ask or can I ask you a favour? And I say yes before I You're even no, know what honestly, it is. I'm just like, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm just like, can I do something for you? <laughs> yeah, sure. What is it? Oh, I shouldn't have committed to that. That's, yeah. yeah. Uh, ask before commit. Yeah. Um, And really what... Every time I've spiraled down at the just before there has been um oh the word is completely gone out of my head. Okay, describe now. describe what it is and I'll try and we'll try and find the word. Um I've resentful. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um so I know as soon as I start feeling resentful, I have to take real good care of myself because that is the beginning of my downfall. Mm. Um because I would literally put everybody else first. At the expense of myself. Exactly the same. And I, but you go over and above normal or healthy you, expectations. Oh, you do it, you do so it. you, it's so true. You never get it back yeah. because actually it's not healthy. No. Because you're you're just damning yourself. Mm. So you never get the same level back, and then you feel resentful yeah. because you think I spend all my time doing this for people without getting anything and back they never it. give it they never you know do the same back or you don't see a, a tangible return yeah yeah um and and part of that is because actually you're setting yourself up to fail because you're 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 not practicing healthy boundaries um and actually so the fact that other people aren't going so far out of their way for you mm. demonstrates that they have got healthy yeah. boundaries yeah. um and also and so now i'm in a place where i've reined it in an awful lot um because i'm a firm believer that if you do something for someone else it should never be about um payback or reward or them owing you something if you do things for other people you have to do it freely um because otherwise you're not doing things for other people. Mm. <laughs> you're doing things for you in yeah. a in a roundabout way. 
Um, so yeah, so so feeling resentful is is my biggest alarm. Um, but I am I am much better at saying no. I'm still not as good as I could be, but mm. I am better. I think I, I think I do. I get a hundred percent share all of what you've just said. I think for me sometimes it's really weird. And I was going to talk about this. Um, I was talking about this to my to a friend the other day, and I sometimes get resentful from. So I'll give you an example. So say the say do you know the TV program Skins? Yes. Right. So it was on when I was growing up, and because I was bullied for so long, and I didn't really have. I had a normal childhood at home, but in school I didn't. You know, I didn't go out partying. I didn't um, do all the things that that's the people in skins get up to, basically, without going into detail. Um, I my despite the fact it's such a great show, and I love all the and I've watched a couple of episodes. My mind won't let me go on my laptop and watch it because it's almost like I feel you resentful yeah. and jealousy of missing out on that life. And you're not going to get it back. Because... No, and I I mean I kind of you know, had slivers of it at uni when I yeah. got out of that school environment. But I definitely have that sense of missing out um, of that period of my life and seeing, and then you hear stories about people from school and they all had those, those yep. similar stories and they all share it and you kind of feel a bit well, Yeah, you feel like an out. alien. Yeah. Everyone else has got this common thing. I yeah. mean, I, I didn't have it more because of my ME because um, I got it I was diagnosed when I was 15 mm. um, and so it meant you know I was the first to arrive at a party because I'd had to be the first to leave so mm. I'd have to leave at like nine which is when yeah. everyone else was turning up so I completely get you know what you mean where it sucked yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you can't get it back no like you can't go back and now you're in this great place yeah. you can't go back and do that with your new found <laughs> confidence you could, you could you could kind of party now but it's not really it's the, not same. the same it's no. not the freshness it's not <laughs> going out for the first time it's not all of that it's not drinking in a field because no, nobody not. is 18 yeah, it's not, it's once you've passed 18 and you drink in the field it is just not the you're same just, you're, you're, back you're, you're just cold freezing um yeah so i i definitely got that and i think it still affects me now, I think, because sometimes when you go in conversations with people and they reminisce about school and obviously like past 16, I was starting to have those experiences and I was starting to have those stories. But when you're like 11 to 16, it's almost like that freshness, isn't that, 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 you know, you go out for the first time or you kiss a girl for the first time or kiss a boy for the first time, whatever, whoever, whatever, you know, gender you fancy. Um, and because I didn't really have that and because when people were doing those experiences, I was in my room contemplating trying to kill myself or I was, you know, being bullied at school. I was being beaten up on the bus or, or, or wherever, whatever happened to me. I, I get that jealousy and it's really hard for me not to let it affect me. Um, but knowing that other people have had that at least is, is, is helped me sort of deal with it a bit better. You're not on your own. There are other people that are in the, same boat as you well i think that's all we've got time for on this edition of the just checking in podcast verity thank you so much for being my first female special guest on this edition's pod and for checking in with me thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in and as always if you've liked what you've heard please give us a share on all the social media channels 
tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or if you're feeling really generous, give us a rating and a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. But nothing problematical It's strange, strange, strange.